Good morning, Freedom Church, and welcome back to our Colossian series. I hope you're really enjoying it. Uh, we are now at chapter three. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me, chapter three, we are looking at verses one to ten this morning. I'm going to read that out. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Do you know, in my top five films of all time, lies The Matrix. And uh, this film, I know some of you will have seen it, many of you will have seen it, and some will not, because it came out 22 years ago. And, you know, in its time when it first came out, it was using technology and graphics that had never been seen before. Um, it was a special film. And I have to be honest, it's not quite as difficult to understand as some films like Inception or Tenet, for example, where you're left baffled about what it's about. But it does take just a few takes to understand really what they're talking about. What is this matrix? What is this first film about? And so I wanna just try and explain from my perspective for those who maybe have watched it and those who definitely haven't, what the matrix is about. So we have Keanu Reeves starring in the matrix and he is this computer programmer. And uh, he has these dreams and when he's dreaming, he's not quite sure whether he's actually a dr dreaming or he's awake, whether it's reality or not reality. And in one of these dreams, he's in this room and he's chatting to this guy called Morpheus. And Morpheus is trying to explain to him in this dream that artificial intelligence has taken over planet Earth. And that artificial intelligence is actually using human beings uh, for their power source. They're using them like batteries. And um, he tells them that essentially human beings have become enslaved to artificial intelligence, that they're being blinded to the truth that actually uh, the reality that they're being fed is a reality fed to them by artificial intelligence. And he sits there and he offers two pills to Neo, his name is. And he offers the red pill and the blue pill. It's a very famous scene. Lots of you will have seen it. And he says, Neo, you can take the blue pill and uh, you, you take the blue pill and you will wake up in your bed tomorrow with the reality that this was all a dream. Or you can take the red pill where you will just see how deep the rabbit hole goes and, um, and your eyes will be exposed to this absolute reality. And of course, Neo takes the red pill. And uh, what happens next is he, we're then taken to this, uh, in one of the scenes, to this strange factory 
where we see millions of uh, humans being growing in these what, what looks like embryonic bags. And they've got wires plugged into them. And you can see that AI is feeding off human life. And they manage to locate Neo's embryonic bag, his body, and he gets dragged out of this bag and he gets taken to this place where he wakes up and he realizes his eyes are sore. And they're like, yeah, you've never used them before. And he can't walk. And so he has to learn all of these things from scratch because what he felt he's been doing, he's never done. He's born again, essentially, in this film. And do you know, my favorite scene is actually in this uh, gym that he ends up in. And Morpheus is with him, and Morpheus is trying to help him to unlearn all of the limitations and the patterns of this old life that were built on rules. And he has to overcome lots of things in this film. He has to overcome fear and doubt and unbelief as he, as he jumps off buildings and has to trust that what he's being told is real. And throughout this film, we see Neo wrestling constantly with what Morpheus describes as knowing the path and walking the path. And although this film isn't a perfect analogy, none of them are, it really does help us to understand what Paul is trying to explain to the church here in Colossae. What he's trying to explain to all of us if we're Christians. He wants us to understand, actually, that we live in a different kingdom now. We are living in a different reality now. And that as a result of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's possible. He wants us to understand our new identity in Christ so that we can live in the fullness of this life on earth. And Matt Ashworth is gonna be speaking next week about what this new life looks like, all the things that we get to put on, all the privileges of this new life and this new spiritual reality that we live in. But Paul starts in this chapter by defining some of the things that we no longer are. Just like Neo was in the gym, there's a sense of unlearning some of the things of the old life. There's a sense Paul uses this thing of putting off, it's like clothing, it's like dirty clothing that we have to learn to take off. I wanna say if you struggle in your life with sexual desires, with lust, with greed, with anger, or with gossip, then this passage is for you. And if you never struggle with any of these things ever, I wanna suggest you may be struggling with another thing Paul mentioned in this passage, and that's lying. I think for all of us, these are things that challenge our natures. But uh, this passage is so good at helping us to understand our new identity, our new nature. And I want to actually start not at the beginning of this passage this morning. I want to start from verse 5 and look at this sense of putting to death. So again, just put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Do you know, this is one of those passages where, as I've looked at it, there's a, there's a wrestle going on inside for me. It's one of those passages I feel like we need to tread quite carefully over from a pastoral perspective. And the reason is, is because I've seen it preached in different ways. I've seen it um, 
to be honest, preach where there's an overemphasis on one side, where the responsibility ends up lying all on the Christian to live this new life. And the danger of that is this becomes uh, a list that becomes like a heavy burden. It's another thing to put on our schedules that we have to start trying to do. And uh, we're never going to live up to it. It could actually become, in this reality, the exact thing that Chris was talking about last week, that Paul was saying, don't do this. Teaching against Christianity being uh, a list of rules to follow. Thinking that by doing this or by doing that, we're going to be loved more by God. And yet, on the other hand, there can be a tendency to put all the emphasis on God. Now, don't get me wrong. Actually, we know that it was through the cross, through God's um, resurrection, that he defeated sin and death, that he's made us new creations, that we firstly have the ability and the power to not live this way anymore. But if all of the emphasis for living this new life lies with God, then we become very passive and, to be honest, probably very disappointed when we realize that putting things off, putting these things off, isn't just like when Neo was in the gym and they could upload karate to him and he was able to be a ninja literally within seconds. And we realize life is not like that. If this is your expectation or maybe your theological stance, then there's going to be a real disconnect between the truth and living it out. And I think the line that we need to take is a both and approach when we look at this topic of living in this new life. You see, there's definitely a sense here of knowing that this new life looks different. We're told, aren't we, that we have died and we've risen with Christ. So just as a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and is reborn, it comes out as a butterfly. You see, it looks totally different and it acts totally different. Not because it's trying really hard to do so, but because it's designed to function totally different. Caterpillars don't stay on leaves, crawling around and eating. Caterpillars do. Butterflies don't stay on leaves crawling around and eating. They fly, don't they? And yet, its wings are formed as it works incredibly hard to escape this cocoon. And without this hard work, the butterfly will never develop the wings that it needs to fly. And so, Paul's phrases we're going to see throughout this half of this chapter leave no doubt about action. Put to death, he says, what is earthly. I want to say this can only be done because of what Christ has accomplished. And yet, without us taking hold or actively putting to death old patterns of life, we'll never live in and take hold of everything that has been provided for us. Just to say this theology that we're looking at this morning, the practical outworking of it, Paul speaks about lots in the New Testament. He's preaching, obviously, to the Colossian church here. But Romans 6, I want to encourage you, go have a look at Romans 6 after this, because it's probably the most famous and I think thorough passages explaining how we live in this new spiritual reality. And it very much touches 
on this sense of not conforming to the patterns of this world any longer, not conforming to the culture of the planet that we live in, uh, because there's a better way, because we actually belong no longer to this world, we actually belong to a different kingdom. And you know, the problem as we look at this world and this culture is that sin has tainted all the things that God has created to be good and it's distorted them. So just thinking about this list that we've been looking at, just to say this list isn't, isn't an exhaustive list at all of sins. It's not a list that we look at and we go, tick, not me, tick, not me, and we think we're all okay. These were obviously issues facing the church in Colossae. And I have to be honest, when I look at the list, I think they are certainly relevant to our society today. But I want to start by saying, when we look at um, these subjects, we look at sexual desire. I just want to say to start, listen, this, this is something that was created by God. It's not some taboo subject that was only ever created to go forth and multiply. So I'd say sex was made to be enjoyable. It was made to be within the confines of marriage. And these vices that are mentioned in this list, do you know they're rife and they're prevalent in our society, aren't they? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. So why is it that Paul mentions, why does he choose to mention these things in the list? We don't fully know, to be honest, but I think honestly, all cultures struggle with these things. But on top of that, I think the damage that can be done when we go after these things are devastating. And it doesn't just hurt ourselves, okay? It damages everybody linked to these things. And most of these desires are coming out of selfishness, okay? Things we want to take, satisfying my needs. Just thinking about pornography as an example, and, and actually the Greek word is pornea that's used in this passage. You know, it's, it's readily available to anyone who wants it in our society, isn't it? Just come and satisfy yourself. Don't worry about those involved who are filming this. The sex industry, I want to say, is one of those that has so distorted something that God created to the point that young men and women now believe that violence and aggression and domination are normal ways of loving someone. And these things that are mentioned in this list, they have become idols in our culture, haven't they? They're things that people spend their money, their time and their energy pursuing and trying to find satisfaction in. And yet when we look at the stats, we see that it's those in monogamous, secure, long-term relationships, marriages, where there is the most satisfaction in this area of the bedroom. Just very practically, I just wanna say if if these are challenges in your life, if you're struggling with lust and uh, impurity and passion and sexual immorality, I want to encourage you firstly not to hide them away. You know, we looked at this, didn't we? When we're looking at David's life, sin has power over us when we hide it. And accountability is key in this area. Paul mentions these things, I think, because he's so aware that these problems are problems all of us are gonna face. And he wants to protect us from not only harming ourselves, but from harming 
others. And he goes on to say this. I don't want to gloss over this line. It'd be really easy just to miss it out. But this line should motivate us also. It says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Wow. Where does that hit you? Do you know, coming back to the film, The Matrix, there's a guy called Cypher in this film. And he's appeared to have chosen the red pill. He seems to be living in this true reality. He's aware of the matrix, but he struggles with belief. And even though he can see the lie that everybody is living uh, who has not been awakened, he decides he doesn't want the truth. He rejects the truth. He actually wants the comfort and the illusion of materialistic things. He sees it and yet he chooses to live the lie. He doesn't want to go through the hard work of unlearning these old patterns of life. And I just want to say there's a stark warning for us in this passage, isn't there? As we see this line, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I just want to say having a healthy view of sin helps us not to become complacent. Now, you know, Neo, throughout the film, The Matrix, he makes mistakes. He keeps falling back into old ways of thinking. But his belief grows throughout this film as he pushes into the truth. I just want to stop this morning and ask you, how are you doing in these areas? Do you know, I'm actually not too bothered whether you've had a really awful week with lust or anger or obscene talk. But if you've just resigned yourself in living in those things, if you feel numb or complacent about sin, then I'm really concerned. And I believe you should be too. Because, listen, if that's how you're feeling this morning, then I really do want to urge you to talk to someone. Talk to someone in your huddle where you're building that depth of relationship, where you've got some accountability. Talk to someone in your life group that you feel like you've got the relationship to say, listen, I'm just living in this way and I'm not, I don't have any motivation or any um, desire to stop doing this. I just want to say God's grace is sufficient for you this morning. But if this is where you're resting, you're in a really dangerous place. Just to say Romans 6, I mentioned this. It's actually one of my favorite chapters in the whole of the Bible. And um, the message version says this. It says, from now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language. That means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. I just love this language. I haven't forgotten this version of the message from the first time that I read it. It says it's a foreign language that we just don't understand. Think of it this way. And I wonder, is that how you feel this morning when you think about gossip? Nope, don't recognize that thing. Anger, no idea what this anger thing's all about. 
I think, to be honest, as we think about this, this isn't the reality for many. And I think the reason Paul says, think of it this way, from now on, think of it this way, is he's, he's pushing us to start to proactively think that way. I think this language is telling us who we are. It's telling us what our new identity is and who we can be. But the reality is, honestly, for me, every week, I get angry over something. I can struggle with self-control, with uh, gossip. It can be so inviting, can't it? So I want to ask the question, how do we move from understanding the truth and living in the truth? Because they can feel like quite different concepts, can't they? Do you know, I think Paul gives us at the beginning of this chapter, one of the massive keys, I believe, in this passage to taking off these nasty clothes that no longer belong to us. So let's go back to it. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Ian McCormack. He was a young man at the time, traveling around the world, enjoying his life. He had a love for surfing and traveling, and he landed in Mauritius, and he was enjoying one day diving for lobsters in the sea. And all of a sudden, he found himself in extreme pain. He had got stung five by five different box jellyfish. Now, just to say, these jellyfish, they are the most poisonous jellyfish in the world. And they can kill within four minutes. Obviously, he got rushed to shore and the ambulance was called. And do you know what? Honestly, no one expected him to make it through even the ordeal of waiting for the ambulances. But the ambulances got there and they put him in the back. And he talks about his journey to the hospital. He was falling in and out of consciousness. But he remembers having a dream or what felt like a dream. And he wasn't a Christian. He didn't know Jesus, but his mum was. And he remembers seeing his mum in this dream and telling her that he was dying. And uh, she started praying and she said to him, son, cry out to God, cry out for his mercy. And um, the story goes, actually, she actually encountered that herself. She then knew her son was in trouble. She had also, as she was praying, felt her son call out that he was dying. So she was praying at the same time. Anyway, they got him to the hospital and they got him on the operating theater and they gave him the antitoxins that he would need, but it was too late and he died. And for 20 minutes, he lay on that operating theater um, clinically dead. He literally died and God actually brought him back to life but he talks about this encounter that he has with God and he talks about how he received his love as he was speaking to him in heaven and uh, Jesus said look you gave your life in the ambulance there you cried out to me and you're now mine and he actually gave him this choice of going back to planet Earth and sharing the light with people. 
And because he came back to life, actually he has spent the rest of his life now. He's now in his 60s. He spent the rest of his life determined to tell people about this Jesus that he met. He's determined to live in the goodness of the life that he has been given. He's fixated with the beauty of this saviour, his saviour. And that's what he's done with his life. And you know, although we are to let go of some of the things from this past life, we get the privilege, don't we, of filling our life, Matt's going to be talking about it, with the one who is knowable, yet incomprehensible at the same time. It's amazing. We get to fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. Do you know, for Ian, he died not only physically and was raised back to life, but he died spiritually and was raised back to life. And he knew that everything that he used to live for affected the direction of his life, okay? The things he chased after, he would now say, were nothing compared to knowing Christ and his eternal destination with him. His life now has become about worship, worshiping the one that he encountered, the one who accepted him, the one who died for him, the one who transformed him. I wanna just read out a quote here from a guy called David Foster Wallace. He was a lecturer in America he wasn't a Christian at all, but he recognized something in the human nature here that I think gives us some insight into this idea of worshiping and where we direct our lives and engage. And he says this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Do you know Wallace, he struggled with depression and alcoholism and drug addiction and suicidal tendencies. And sadly, he committed suicide at the age of 46. But he grasped something here about the human condition that was obviously part of his experience. He says they'll eat you alive. And I want to say as humans, we all worship something. But this passage is essentially saying to us, why would you want to worship earthly things? Things that cannot satisfy, created things. When we get full access to the creator of all things. When you get access, the savior of humanity. You see the secret or the, the key to living this new life is found in these verses. Because what Paul is doing is he's urging and commending us to fix our hearts and our minds on him. 
our Saviour. Because, you know, as we do, as we learn more about him, as we have encounters with him, I want to say we're empowered to live for him. We see with clarity that he himself is the way and the truth and the life. We see the futility of chasing after these other things that have enslaved us. And, you know, fixing our eyes and our minds on him, him helps us, to be honest, to not be distracted by these other ways, these other patterns of life, trying to return to these old patterns of life. But it's definitely this action is not a passive action at all. I think there's a sense here of daily dying to self. That's what it's asking here, that we daily die to self, to the fleshly desires, to stop trying to live in the old patterns of life, I want to say this, is impossible without Jesus, without his power and his love and the security we depend on. It becomes about willpower, which means we're doomed to failure. And that's why... For me, this is the key to understanding how we live in this new life. We have to daily fix our hearts and our minds on him. The one who will give us the power. The one who has given us the authority. The one who has given us the ability. And yet it's active. Actively seeking him out. And as we're caught up and seeing this glorious picture of who he is, as we're caught up in experiencing him, all these other things fade into the backgrounds. And you know, just so I was writing this, I have to be honest, I felt God convicted me and I felt like I wanted to bring this to you as a church. Because you know, there are things in my life that, I was asking that question, other things in my life that are distracting me from fixing my heart on him. Am I displaying any of the symptoms of the old life that Paul's talking about here? And the answer is yes. And just as a little example, I realized that I like looking at houses and I often flick onto right move, sometimes daily. And you know what? We're not intending to move as a family. And yet for some reason, I still flick onto this website to look at houses, even though we have a wonderful house that's totally the provision of God. I find myself regularly flicking onto right move just to check maybe is there my dream house up there? And I realize this has become a pattern. And you know, although it's not wrong to go onto right move and to look at houses, I felt God just bring this conviction of, of why? What's the motive of my heart here? Is it greed? Is it escapism? Is it distraction? You know, very subtly, something has caught my attention. It has my gaze. And I knew there was an action to be done in response to this as the Holy Spirit brought that conviction. And so I started to fix my gaze on him this week. I started to imagine, actually, and to dream about the heavenly dwelling that I'm destined for, the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what? 
I reminded myself of the new identity that I have. I'm no longer a slave to sin. It, it can't hold me. It has no mastery over me. Do you know, as we fix our hearts and minds on Christ, he will give us conviction. He will give us the power and the joy of throwing off everything that hinders. He will empower us to live out the life that we're going to hear about next week. But I just want to encourage you as I end this morning, just to examine your own life and ask the question, are there any old patterns of life I keep returning to? And if so, why? And I want to encourage you this morning to come and to drink from the God who is slow to anger, rich in love. I want you to come and once again be fixated with his beauty. To call on his power to help you to say no to earthly things, things that will never satisfy, and to live in the fullness of this new kingdom, this new culture that we get to bring to others.